So last week, we finished the 150th Psalm. Some of you breathed a sigh of relief, and some of you wrote your own lamentations. Um, One of the texts that I used to, to help us move through it, to give us inspiration, to look at some of the technical aspects, was a very short and elegantly written book by uh, one of my favourite authors, uh, this guy. Anyone know who he is? Clive Staples Lewis, uh, in all his uh, glory. Uh, you probably very familiar uh, with the Narnia tales, but he wrote some other excellent works. So Mere Christianity, Screwtape Letters, Problem with Pain, The Four Loves. There's some brilliant stuff that he wrote. And he wrote this really cool uh, fantasy trilogy, uh, which I really uh, love, but seems to have sort of uh, been forgotten about a bit. Anyway, as I was reading the book, um, there was something that struck me um, that I kind of mentally bookmarked and said, we're going to have to come back to that at some point because the, the series on the Psalms wasn't really the place for it. And I thought to myself, well, we're going to return to that. And lo and behold, today's the day we're going to return to it. So um, it says this early on in his book, in the uh, book of Psalms. It seems quite clear that in most parts of the Old Testament, there is little or no belief in a future life. Hmm, I wonder how you feel about that. Certainly no belief that is of any religious importance. The word translated soul in our version of the Psalms means simply life. The word translated hell means simply the land of the dead, the state of all the dead, good and bad alike, Sheol. Sheol's the the Hebrew word that he's uh, looking at. It is difficult to know how an ancient Jew thought of Sheol. He did not like thinking about it. His religion didn't encourage him to think about it. No good could come of thinking about it, but evil might. It was a condition from which very wicked people, like the witch of Endor, were believed to be able to conjure up a ghost. But the ghost told you nothing about Sheol. It was called upon solely to tell you things about our own world. Or again, if you allowed yourself an unhealthy interest in Sheol, you might be lured into one of the neighbouring forms of paganism uh, and eat the offerings of the dead and... uh, He quotes Psalm 106. So C.S. Lewis looks at the book of Psalms and he says, I can find no clear articulation of the afterlife or eternity. Now, C.S. Lewis isn't a theologian and he says that again and again. And so I would argue with him on this point. I think again and again we find in the Old Testament indications that the Jewish culture very much could believe in the afterlife. There is one of my favourite moments is when Elijah gets this chariot of fire and gets caught up in a whirlwind up towards heaven. And there's certainly an understanding that he doesn't just vanish into nothing uh, but there is something for him afterwards 
And at the end of Daniel's prophecies, um, Daniel talks about there's a destiny for the righteous and the unrighteous. And then the unrighteous can look forward to everlasting contempt. And so there is a, a vivid awareness again and again, I think, in many of the Old Testament books, that there is an existence beyond Sheol, that this grave that opens up for everyone, that there is something afterwards to expect. However, to be fair to the genius of C.S. Lewis, it does seem that he is a little bit right. That the Israelites, if you were to talk to them about heaven and hell, they would probably look at you a little vaguely. Their idea of it wasn't very well developed at all. It was hazy and murky. And they're not really clear what happens, apart from some vague ideas of good and evil. And so theologians who enjoy something in the New Testament look back in the Old, they start to tie themselves in, uh, in knots trying to decipher the meaning of the word Hades and Sheol because they appear and they're going, well, what does it mean for the Jews? Because they weren't quite clear what it meant. But when Jesus came, things got a lot clearer, as is so often the case. Everything from the means of salvation to eternity, suddenly becomes clarified. You know, Moses and Noah and uh, many of the uh, Old Testament heroes, they kind of had this trust that God would save them, but they didn't know how and what was going to be the means of it. And in Jesus, we find the answer that they... These Old Testament heroes trusted in God and God would ultimately bring salvation through his son Jesus. And then eternity too. What does eternity look like? How does it measure up? And Jesus talks a lot about the afterlife and what to look forward to. And he talks about it in wonderfully simple and refreshing ways that theologians and preachers and book writers have complicated again and again unnecessarily. However, I wonder what you think about it. I wonder if I took your Bible away from your phone and uh, the physical Bible in your uh, hands, what you could say about heaven and hell and the afterlife. Because it's my suggestion that we are all still quite hazy about it. That when we think of decay and death, that we don't really know quite how to process it. We have our scriptures and we have this wonderful experience of knowing Jesus, but when it comes to the prospect of death, we start to get a little unsettled. You and I, we live in a uh, time and an age where the Christian culture that's being promoted knows a lot about triumph and health. The books that sell well in Christian bookshops or online and, and, and in physical bookshops, they're the ones that say your best life now, how to get 
health, health, how to get happiness, how to get wealth, how to be successful, how to be uh, just thoroughly pleased with yourself as a Christian. How to uh, not have any pain in childbirth, how to raise the perfect child that never says a bad word. All these things are uh, this anticipation that sort of the kingdom of heaven can come now in your day-to-day lives. But people don't know what to do with failure and sickness. People don't know what to do if they're a Christian and they face long-term sickness. How does that reconcile with all the scriptures that preachers like to bring up? If we are physically unwell or mentally unwell, what does that mean? When we read all the good books and then we are still not the leader of a multi-campus international church reaching the nations. What does it mean when we follow all the Christian advice and we are not the CEO of Google and Facebook? What does it mean when even in our own work situations we get overlooked and dismissed, even though we're trying our hardest? What does it mean when every day seems to be a struggle rather than a triumph of the children of God? And then we think of death. As uh, Hamlet looked at the skull of Yorick. We look at it and we're a little bit scared by it. We want to postpone it. We want to avoid it. I wonder how many of you, if I asked you, would go, yeah, I would love to die right now. Because the rest of us would be like, well, you're suicidal and there are are, uh, sort of drugs and medication and courses. We can put you on for that. Only recently I was talking to a very mature old Christian and they were obviously feeling their age. It's no one in this room. And you could tell that they were slightly panicking at the thought of death. They were worried that they hadn't left behind a legacy. They were looking backwards and they're thinking, you know what, I'm not too sure what I've done. And the prospect, and it's more and more imminent for them, the prospect of death was not something that they were really looking squarely in the eye. I wonder how you would feel and what would you do that if you knew that at midnight tonight your life would be taken from you? I wonder what activity you would seek out. Whether you would jump out of your chair in this church service and go and do something useful with your life. Whether you would jump out of your chair and uh, go and find family to be around or go around and try and find some sort of bungee jump, you know, hedonistic experience to endure or uh, whether you, some of you would just be even more miserable than you are. If that prospect of death at midnight causes panic, if it causes you remorse, if it causes you confusion or even 
apathy, this sermon is for you. Turn to uh, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Some of you, it sounds like you didn't even know there was a book of Ecclesiastes. Well, that's awesome. So, uh, things like Proverbs and Psalms and Lamentations, they're considered like the, the wisdom literature. Um, and so, you, you should find it in your Bibles after Psalms. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. And welcome to this brand new book of the Bible that some of you didn't know was there. Um, so, that's really exciting. I love Ecclesiastes, the words of King Solomon, who had everything you could possibly bear. It's basically, if Mark Zuckerberg was a Christian and he had to write something, this is the sort of thing I would imagine he would write. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. Look forward to the fridge magnets with that one. You who are young, be happy while you are young. And let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Banishing anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body. For youth and vigour are meaningless. We have this moment and and it's, it's qualified instruction, you know. But King Solomon says, you young people. And I would suggest that that's maybe sort of anyone sort of 25 and under. Sorry, anyone that's older that pretends they're young. He says to you, enjoy your youth. You've got this quality that you don't really know it's there, but it is a wonderful thing to immerse yourself in. Now, I have, and this is a confession, I have a disdain for contemporary pop culture, uh, contemporary pop music particularly. Um, I hate, I have always hated Mercury FM, I hate uh, Hearts Radio, I hate Radio 1, I hate anything where... Uh, whether it's sort of Britney Spears or Madonna or uh, um, sort of Taylor Swift, anything like that is playing. It's, it's, and, and it's not because I've got a pr- profound theological aversion to them. It's, it's basically this snobbery that I assumed when I was at sixth form, that anything that the masses enjoyed must be rubbish. And uh, I was like the uh, discerner of uh, more quality stuff. And, uh, and, and, and so it's a, a confession there. Now, and so I have this aloof and scathing opinion of pop music. Anything that heart plays, you know what, it's beneath my contempt. But in 2015, I encountered the Danish singer Mo. And her, it's made out of two letters, the first one being M, and then the other one's like this O with this 
Dashfoot, and I've got no idea how to pronounce it. So some of you are fans of hers, uh, and I've pronounced it wrong, I'm very sorry. And she's got this video called Kamikaze, um, and it's great. It seems to me the quintessence of youth. It is full of teenagers mucking around. Basically, there are teenagers without helmets going full speed on scrambler motorbikes doing wheelies around each other and getting dangerously close. There are other youths that have found basically uh, an old banger. I've got a, a great affection for older, older cars that you just keep on going through the MOT by more and more welding. And they're all hanging out the windows and hanging out the sunroof and they're singing and enjoying life. And there's these wonderful bits where they've got forklift trucks and these uh, sort of uh, urban landscapes and all the youth are kind of dancing uh, on these faultless, and it's basically a health and safety nightmare. You know, as, a, as a, a responsible adult, you would be like, no, you are not doing that, and you are not going to play out with those friends at all, because you will come a cropper. But there's an energy and a fearlessness and a joy for life that I love. And it, and it seems to be sort of captured in this great video, as all these lunatics are doing crazy stuff. It is really irresponsible and also very illegal. But I think Solomon would have recognised it and he would have smiled. I think Solomon would have recognised these guys enjoying speed and their physicality and each other's company. And I think he would have looked on them and said, you know, I recognise that and you, you, you need to enjoy that. Because all too soon it's gone... And even getting out of bed, you just accompany with creaks and you're relieved when it's over. <laughs> death and fear of death is like taxes and the news. It's for old people. However, as we age, our priorities and our values and our outlook change. Let's look again at King Solomon's words. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. It says this. A good name is better than a fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Look forward to you writing that each other's greeting cards. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Perhaps... Well, I won't go there. Um, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. That's one of my private uh, passages that I like to reflect on and uh, uh, find great nutrition spiritually from. Death is the destiny of everyone. For the living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. Awesome, Solomon. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. And this too is meaningless. Ex, ex, um, um, extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better 
than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. And uh, I'm sorry if you've said this already today. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? (laughs) For it is not wise to ask such questions. So all those that hark back to the olden days, Solomon rebukes you. But I think we have here some words of Solomon to the old and the grumpy and the cynical. As our bodies sag and develop aches and pains, we realise that that um, wheeling a motorbike without a helmet at 50 miles an hour is not going to end well. We are, as we grow older, very aware that we are neither immortal nor invincible. Curbs in life, when we were young, there were opportunities to grind your skateboard over and look cool. Now they're trip hazards. And you've got to be careful. And the prospect of death comes nearer and nearer. And you realise you're less and less invincible. And you are more and more alarmed. And I find it fascinating that all the rich people, as they get older, they often start giving away all their evilly accumulated wealth because they realise it was actually a bad idea and that giving is better than receiving. Those that have lived badly start getting frustrated with the youth around them because they can see them following in their footsteps and they get grumpy and start telling them off. And those that have never understood what it really means to be alive start to get really worried about death and fearfully ward it off at every opportunity. And so you have this youthful obliviousness of death where it just seems almost imaginary and you have the elderly obsessiveness with death where it's something that you don't want to happen, you're trying to fend off and you're trying to make your whole life meaningful so when it happens it's okay. Well to this morning I just want to tell you the right way to think about death and I suggest neither of those approaches is right. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. One Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse forty-two. It says this: "So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable; it is raised imperishable. It is sown with gallstones, but it is raised without them. It is sown in dishonour." You don't find a half-naked 90-year-old on the cover of uh, OK magazine or uh, any of the other fashion ones. You know that as they get older, it becomes uh, more and more, less and less something you'd want to be like. 
It's sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, and by that he means kind of this physical decaying ones that we inhabit at the moment, and it is raised a spiritual body. Now, it doesn't mean a non-physical body. He means something glorious and new, something uh, that knows what the Holy Spirit is all about. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, anyone know the last Adam's name? Excellent. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, and the second man is of heaven. As with the earthly man, so are those of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those of heaven. And Paul is working hard to contrast Adam with Jesus. Adam died, Jesus rose again. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man, the heavenly man being Jesus. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. So if you want all the I's dotted and T's crossed about your everlasting life, then you are in trouble. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe themselves with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And then there's this little taunting uh, uh, school playground dance where oh death is your victory where oh death is your sing and the little sticking out your tongue and whatever else the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god he gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ therefore my dear brothers and sisters stand firm let nothing move you always give yourselves fully to the work of the law because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul tells us something of the afterlife and more than we get elsewhere. He tells us what to expect and how to conceive of it. Paul says that it is inevitable. It is an inevitable stage in our acclimatizing ourselves to eternity. Eternity is coming. And death is part of the process of going to enjoy that. It's not something to be feared or worried about. It is not something to get worked up about. It's inevitable. It happens to every single person. And it is part of that journey into eternal life. When Adam was created and fell from God's favour, his existence was characterised by dust. You know, this thing that comes and goes, that has no merit of its own. 
And the same is for all his descendants, and that includes us. Even the strongest and healthiest physical frames that have ever been wither and die. Ask Goliath how he's doing. But that withering and dying isn't the final experience of those that love Jesus, that trust in him for their salvation, that have realised that they haven't got what it takes and then they need help. Now just as those kids out there are acting the beginning of Jesus' life, we also know hopefully how it ended as well. It ended in torture and execution and death. That Jesus's physical body was completely undone. And that death paid the penalty for our sin. It uh, wiped the sight clean for those that trust in him. But was that the end of Jesus's story? Um, normally I have rhetorical questions, but this is not rhetorical. Was that the end of Jesus's story? We can be a little bit better than that. Was that the end of Jesus's story? No. Excellent. Okay. I'm glad no one also was just worried about saying yes and then. No, it wasn't. <laughs> he was raised again, and we have quite a few stories of him being seen by different people. There was this great story about uh, Mary meeting him. It's wonderful that uh, uh, Mary was looks like the first to encounter him, and she didn't recognise him. And then he said, it's me, Mary. And then she was like, yes, of course it is. And you have this. There's this difference and continuity with now. When we meet each other's resurrected bodies, it will be, who are you? Oh, of course you are that person. It will be, you are Peter, but much more than Peter. You are David and Beth and Barry and Francis. You are that person, but so much more. You are not the restrained earthly ones that I knew, but you are glorified. The road to Emmaus, when the disciples were walking Jesus, he was very clever, and he told them how all of Scripture related to him and him rising from the dead and they didn't recognize him and then they suddenly did when he'd gone they were like oh that's Jesus of course it is and there's this continuity with the now but a wonderful difference as well and you know what I can't say anymore because it's a mystery I can say you're going to be similar to who you are now but also wonderfully different the exact manner of the improvements are a little bit of a mystery. And it's an exciting one. I don't know whether we will all have sort of six-packs and, and trim waists and wonderful hair and uh, sort of perfect nails and teeth or that it's going to be different in a more exciting way. That this idea of perfectly straight white teeth, that there's a better truth that God's got in uh, for your dentures. The latter glory that awaits you will be far better than the current one. 
If you're young, you might feel, I'm doing all right, you know, I've got my own teeth and my, my hair is still there. And some of you have got on a bit and all the things that you did enjoy in your youth have perhaps gone to pot. But you can be sure that even in the prime of your youth, you are not going to be able to hold a light to the resurrected you. If you have endured some issue all your life, whether it's a a rash or a handicap or a disability or a disadvantage, whether you have always endured some sort of medical condition, that will have gone. That will no longer define you. It will no longer be part of your life. And it will be far better. You will be so far better that it will almost be a, why did I even worry about that? Why did I care? I've got an eternity to enjoy this. Why did I care about these few years on earth when I was enduring that suffering? We will be perfectly healthy. Not just healthy compared to each other, but perfectly healthy. We will be perfectly strong. All those jam jars, you've been unable to answer every single one of them. You'll be able to pop the first go. You will be perfectly capable. You'll be wonderfully intelligent. You'll be holy. You'll be really good at being good. You will be perfectly good at being good. I find that something exciting because I am really bad at being good and I'm very good at being bad. But I really like the idea of being perfectly uh, capable of being perfect. We will be beautiful. Some of us look in the mirrors and we don't like what we see because it doesn't measure up to whatever uh, model uh, is on the media. But when the time comes, when your resurrected body comes, you will be perfectly delightful. Everyone will look at you and think you're amazing and beautiful and lovely. You will be radiant. When Moses met God, he came down again and he was radiant like a some sort of light reflected off his skin. And different theologians argue over this, but it seems that there will be a certain radiance to all of us in these resurrected bodies that we will glow. It will be like we have eaten ready back day and night for a month. And it's something to look forward to. Death is just the portal to becoming who God really wanted you to be all along. You know, some of us are, you know, I'd like to be a bit different in this manner. God, I'm a little bit disappointed how you've made my legs a bit stubby. You know, I've never been able to win the 100 metres race at school. And that's all undone when heaven comes. When your resurrection body, your legs will be perfectly long enough to do whatever you want. Death is just the portal to the most exquisite transformation that creation has ever witnessed. Romans talks about creation longing for the sons of glory to be revealed. Creation longs for you to be transformed because it means its time has come as well. It longs for perfection to come. All those that love Jesus will become like him and they will Enjoy bodies of health and happiness. 
And when you think of it, of course these physical mortal bodies, with their imperfections and scars and sicknesses and gallstones and stubby legs and tendencies to sin, of course they've got no, no business at all in God's presence. However marvellous you think you look, however wonderful you think you are at athletics and mathematics and um, performance arts, however marvellous you think you are, you are still inadequate and you are not going to make it and God wants to transform that. God wants to change you into what he has always intended you to be like. Your current form has no business in the presence of God, but your new one will. Your new one will be perfectly suited to God's presence. So when David struggles with his eyesight a bit, his eyesight will be 20-20. I don't know if there's a number beyond 20-20, but I like to think there is. Someone has said, and I, I'm going off-piste, but you know the we can see a certain amount of the electromagnetic spectrum, you know, sort of the, uh, the various colours. Well, we might be able to see more colours, whether it's sort of ultraviolet and infrared. Our ability to see will just be heavenified. And that's not a word, but it is now. <laughs> These bodies, of course, they're going to die because they've got no business in eternity, no business in God's presence. Who wants to be stuck in these bodies forever? That's an awful idea. We will shed them like the chrysalis of a butterfly or the husk of a delicious fruit. When my kids eat oranges at home, they start off by trying to chew the orange as it is and they learn very quickly that that is not the way to eat them. You have to peel the beggars. And the same is with each of you. You have to peel them and get to what God really uh, has got for you. That husk... And some of you have painted it up and think it's all right. That husk is going only in the bin. Now, I realise that we get caught up at that moment of lifelessness, especially when someone we loved, uh, uh, and we know that they love Jesus, but there's that moment of grief, isn't there, when that husk is dead, when it goes thrown in the bin, and we're like, oh, you know, that, that, that hurts. But we're Christians. And our approach to death is different. Death is indeed a moment of a hallelujah. When we remembered Lillian Herbert passing away earlier this year, it had some sadness, but there was a joy that her body, that she struggled with for so many years, was finally liberated And she was dancing and singing in the presence of Jesus with an abandoned... She is never known on earth. And so whether we are young or middle-aged or elderly, I want you to drink this in. I want you to enjoy it. This is kind of like the, the whole point of it. The whole point of Jesus is for you to enjoy this glorious eternal life. It is not just so that you can give all your money to the church and just avoid all the prayer programs with swearing and sex in and all the other sort of holy and righteous activities, is looking forward to this eternity. Sin, death and corruption will be swallowed up in victory. Swallowed up 
by a perfect, elegant, vibrant, triumphant immortality. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful thing. And sometimes we forget this and sometimes uh, we get very fixated on the now. And I love this prospect of eternity that the Bible just drones on and on and on about and that we can miss sometimes. Suddenly, languishing in a care home or a hospice bed, which is seen by a lot of our cultures, the worst thing possible, suddenly that's not a big deal. It's only a momentary thing. These husks of bodies are going to pass away and then immortality is going to be revealed. Suddenly it's put in its right context. And Paul ends all this talk in 1 Corinthians by saying, So, stand firm, live wildly and dangerously for Jesus. When you realise that death is not something to be afraid of, there is a portal to your immortality where every dream you've ever had is just going to be answered and more. Suddenly living for Christ now is quite a good thing. Suddenly living dangerously for Christ is an investment, not a risk. Suddenly selling all your belongings to serve other people, suddenly working hard for the poor, even though they don't appreciate it, it's an investment. Suddenly transforming your entire life around service and listening to what God says. It's not a risk that you've got to uh, modify. It is an investment that is guaranteed to come to fruition. And this is why Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I dream that all of us will be able to say that. That the prospect of care homes and hospices and, and uh, hospital beds, they don't, fear, they don't fill us with terror. Because these are just husks and going to pass away. And so we just live for Christ now. And when we die, it is gain. We profit. Everything gets a whole lot better. And we need to see death like that. Because that's what Paul tells us. And that's what Jesus died for. I've entitled this sermon, The Conquer, an English Sermon. As we hopefully try and sort of reconfigure our thinking and not listen to all the people that say you must defer death, you must avoid it, death is the worst possible thing that could happen to you, it is just an end of all your dreams, there is just worms that you can expect. As we reconfigure, as we understand that death is just this beautiful moment of transformation for those that love Jesus, I want to finish with a children's book. It's one of the reasons uh, that I've said all that I've going to say because I found something in a children's book that I loved. If you ever have an opportunity to read a child a bedtime story, whether it's your child or one that you've kidnapped, um, I want to recommend the writings of Patricia St. John. She is this um, brilliant author. Um, she was, uh, first and foremost, an English missionary nurse. So she knew what it was to commit her whole life to serving um, in Morocco. 
whole life devoted to looking out for others. Didn't build herself a kingdom on this earth at all. But she wrote some amazing books. And uh, David Virgo has just fed my family them again and again, which I have been delighted uh, with. And my children have too. They lot books, you know, they come and go and they haven't quite uh, translated into the modern age. But this one is just... Um, the girls are exactly like my Sophia and the boys are exactly like uh, Miles and Job. And it's wonderful uh, how she captures the inner turmoil and emotion uh, and ambitions of children. Um, and uh, so Treasure of the Snow is a great one. Uh, Tanglewood Secret is another. And that's the one I'm going to read. And I'm going to finish with. So... Reading, and I'm sorry if you're going to read it and you don't know the story, but there is a boy called Terry and he dies. So he falls off a tree, climbing it, uh, and he dies. And these children are like, What on earth are we going to do with death? What on earth are we going to deal with this trouble? And uh, there's a shepherd called Mr. Tandy, and uh, he's awesome. Um, Where am I going to read from? I'm going to read a little bit more than I should. I'm sorry for keeping you, but it's a really good bit. I was so tired and so miserable that I'd never heard slow, heavy steps rustling through the leaves. And I quite jumped when a well-known voice above me spoke to me. I don't know whether I should do an accent. (laughs) Why, little maid, little maid, said the voice. You can't do it without an accent. What be all this about? Ye'll catch ye death of a cold lying there on this ground. It was Mr. Tandy, and he stooped down and wrapped his big rough coat about me, just as though I'd been one of his own stray lambs. Then he sat down on the root, and I gave a very big sniff. I had not seen Mr. Tandy for a long time, for a long while, because he'd left our district to go and work in the Cradley Folds. I was very pleased, but very surprised to see him. Very glad to have someone to talk to after my lonely walk. I told this old man my whole story, all about Terry and his pain and his picture and how he had come to live with us and hadn't got better. I prayed so hard that he would get better, I said, despondently. But it didn't do any good. God didn't listen. And Terry died. Little maid, replied Mr. Tandy, rather hesitatingly. Suppose you come to me and says, there's a little lame lamb down yonder that can't run about on account of the pasture being sheep, being steep-like and the stone sharp. And supposing I come down and picked up that little lamb and carried him in my arms to another pasture where the grass was sweet and the ground easy-like, You wouldn't come and tell me as I hadn't listened to you, would you? I gazed at him dumbly. I was beginning to understand. Little maid, he went on. The shepherd took his lamb home. That's all. You've got no cause to worry. But I cried, my eyes once more filling with tears. It didn't seem like that at all. I know you'll see Terry's in heaven, but it didn't look like that to me. They buried Terry in the earth, and we left him there. And it seemed so sad and lonely. How can Terry be with the shepherd when we've left him lying in the earth? 
The old man did not answer for a moment. And then he started scraping about with his hands in the leaf fall, as though he were looking for something. His search was rewarded, and he held out a shiny brown conker. In one hand, and an empty seed case in the other, a withered old thing with green prickles turning brown. Now tell me, he said in his slow, thoughtful voice, what's going to happen to the conker, and what's going to happen to the covering? Oh, I answered, the case will be buried in the leaves, and then I suppose it will just wither away. It isn't needed anymore, but the conker will grow roots and leaves and turn into a chestnut tree. That's right, said Mr. Tandy encouragingly. You couldn't have said it better. Now tell me this, little maid. When you see the young chestnut chestnut tree a-waving its little new leaves in the sunshine next spring, with the birds a-singing around it and the rain a-watering it, you ain't going to fret anymore for that old case that's crumbled under the leaves, are you? No, I answered, with my eyes fixed on his face. Once more, I thought I understood. Well then, said the old man triumphantly, you cease fretting for what you laid down below. Twarn't nothing but the case. The laddies are growing strong in the sunshine up yonder, along with his saviour. His kind eyes lit up with joy as he spoke. He threw down the conquering case, shouldered his axe, and rose stiffly to his feet because his knees were full of rheumatism, as he had once told me. Then he unwrapped me and told me to go home. For if I don't get along, he said, I shan't get that there gap mended and my sheep will be straying out again. Goodbye, little maid, and God bless you. I watched him as he moved off into the golden shadows of the wood and then I stooped down and picked up the conker in its case and clutching them tightly in my hand, I set off home as fast as I could. Heavenly Father, We thank you that this is not all there is. That this physical world that we struggle through, it's not the sum total of creation. That everything gets to be made new. And that includes each one of us that loves you. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would have this healthy understanding of death as not something to fear and worry and avoid, but something to see as just that moment of transformation when mortality gets swallowed up by immortality, when the husk of a conquer gets thrown away and that horse chestnut flourishes as a tree. Lord God, I pray for each one of us that uh, uh, we would hold this true exciting biblical view and our our understanding of it would be something that just rocks the world of those around us god i pray this in jesus name amen